In the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. In the kingdom of the paranoid, the one-eyed man is a spy. This is Paranoid Planet. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. Esta nunca ha sido dictadura, señores. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so were we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. Silent Green is people! Welcome to episode 3.4 of Paranoid Planet. I am your host, Michel-Jacques Gagné, recording this program from inside a large wooden cage that once served as the primary residence of Mr. Muggs, Jim Jones's favorite monkey. Or I think I should say chimp. My apologies to the chimp community and to the monkey community and I guess everyone else. Uh, with me as always, as almost always, is my producer, co-host, and favorite revolutionary jungle preacher, Joan Daniel Lijo. Say hello, Joan. Hello, people. How are you doing? So we, we kind of missed you last episode. Uh, I was in a barrel, uh, you know, trying to hide from David Miscavige. And you were on a plane around that time to South America. And then after I'd recorded that bit, it turns out uh, you had a very di different trip than the one you anticipated. So tell us a little bit about what happened on your, your jolly old excursion to your native land. Yeah, well, I did everything correct, you know, every single step, you know, taking your PCR, taking, you know, your, 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 all the exams you need to have. You got your uh, COVID test on the way at exactly. the airport on the way or something, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you have to do it like a day before. Yeah. And at Canada, Air Canada, uh, well, they received my documentation. And then they said, okay, where are you going to Chile? Okay, give me one second. And then the ladies took my passport and took like 10 minutes to come back. So I was like, hmm, something smells bad. And yeah, the thing is, they said, sadly, you cannot take the plane because... Uh, there is a longer um, stay, you stop in Brazil. I was going to Sao Paulo and then Chile. Uh, and I said, why? It's just two hours. No, no, now it's six hours. Then your you know, test will not cover your, you know, the, the remaining time that you need to, to oh, get those, to Chile. Those SOBs. He said, oh, insidious virus, man. And yeah, actually that day, that Monday, they detected... Oh, the, yeah. the Brazilian on strength. Oh, yeah. And they start freaking out, you see? So, but I didn't know. And I was actually leaving on Wednesday. So, at that time, yeah, Air Canada was actually flagging, you know, every so, single So, one Air Canada was... is the one that prevents you from going to Chile. It exactly. wasn't the Chilean um, <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no. secret police or whatever. It no, wasn't no, the Dina two... who tried to round you towards <laughs> Colonia Dignidad to ask you a few <laughs> questions. A few. <laughs> exactly. a few, a few final questions. Exactly. Plus, when I came back, everything got more restricted, and then now you need to pay an hotel to come back. Everything was a mess. I said, you know what? I prefer to be vaccinated. You know, and 
and then we'll see. It feels like Venezuela. We have to bribe everybody to go everywhere these days. Yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's sad, but really, it's uh, I think for the better. Imagine, man, six hours in the Sao Paulo, you know, airport. Ooh, I would be really freaked out. Like, yeah. <laughs> Hiding in a corner inside a pla- your head inside a plastic bag. No, plus anyway, you're in a close environment, so no, no. Mm-hmm. I spent the night in a Greyhound bus station in Los Angeles once. It was one of the scariest nights of my life. And it, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if this sounds like, uh, you know, racist or whatever. It's just that, like, I'm completely surrounded with the types of people that I've never seen in my life. I mean, if I was in Montreal surrounded by a biker gangs who were like murderers and drug dealers, I'd be OK. But it's just the fact that all these people are speaking Spanish and they didn't seem to look very fondly on me. Yes, it is racist. <laughs> well, no. It, look, it, it's not because of their race. It's because I didn't... Pasa, amigo? It's because pasa? I didn't know what was going on, right? I don't know if these people are packing heat. I mean, we're, we're in a bus station. This is like not... This is not Beverly Hills uh, Airport, you know, right? This is like the people who can't afford to travel any other way. You know, whether they're, whether they're white or black or blue or whatever, it's just... It's the Greyhound station. This show will be canceled. It will be. It will be. Okay. So anyway, so I I, I sympathize with you. I guess that I, I kind of yeah. lived a, a moment like your Sao Paulo experience. I'm sure the Brazilians don't like the Chileans too much. Anyways, <laughs> um, as, as you know, uh, my wife got the COVID two weeks ago. Uh, yes, fortunately, that, that I mean, my, my, my mother-in-law died last year of it. But this time it was, it was something that kind of came and went in a few days. But what's really making my whole family livid and angry right now is that because my wife had the COVID, that means that like seven days later, she's got a stamp of approval. She can go and travel everywhere. She can go back to work. But me and the kids had to stay here the entire duration of her isolation. And then our isolation starts like five days after she's not even um, uh, she's not even infected anymore, right? No, showing any symptoms. So my kids are just angry. Like the government, you know, called us on the weekend, like some some nurse from Santé Publique and told us the kids have to stay until the 24th of March. And this is like right at the beginning of the month, right? Three to four weeks, including on top of the March break, that was nothing to do. And they're just livid. Now, fortunately, my, my, my son has Fortnite to keep him busy, but he's spending an awful lot of time shooting people in the head. You know, I'm not sure if that's a good thing, right? And, yeah, I don't know if he's safe to actually yeah. Yeah, drink his anger yeah. in that way. And, and my daughter, whose wonderful voice we hear at the beginning of each of our, our episodes, uh, you know, she's got her cell phone, and I don't know who she's talking to, right? For all I know, you know, some some stranger from, you know, <laughs> from Brazil or whatever is talking to her. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a funny... You're getting it's a funny paranoid. Well, the, the problem, I think my problem is I was so honest in everything I said to the nurse on the phone or whatever, they said, oh, no, your house is not safe enough. You've got to stay the extra time. And I'm like, you know, we were disinfecting everything, sitting on different parts of the, the room. My wife was wearing a mask when she's walking around. Like, we were... This place was almost like a hospital, except I didn't lock up my wife downstairs in the furnace room. You know, which is probably what they wanted me to do. And I thought, like, no, I want to be a nice guy and not do that to my wife. So I'm thinking of all the people who wouldn't care. They would just tell the nurse on the phone, oh, yeah, yeah, we've done all this stuff. And then they just kind of get out, right? So it's it's a weird kind of time because the government can't do anything but take people at their word. And the number of people who must be lying, because every now and then you hear about an outbreak in a school, um, 
And, uh, you know, no one really declared that they were sick. So that means that a lot of people are either having parties or breaking the rules and they're not telling anybody. It's hard to trace. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So what happens is the more honest you are, the more you pay. The more you're stuck. You know, we have a curfew now in Quebec. Yeah, because they, they freak out. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You know, my friend in Ohio, um, uh, you know, called me and he's just astounded at all the, the, the limits and things that we have here. Mind you, over there, they're dying like flies. So I don't know if that's better. <laughs> you see? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at least they're dying free like flies. Sorry. That's, that was not called for. We will remove that in post-production. Okay. But anyways, uh, so just before we move on to our show, I do want to recognize that we had a, a really awesome show with um, uh, Tony Ortega about Scientology. Um, and it actually was our biggest one-day download, right? So uh, we're not downloading 10,000 episodes a day yet. Uh, I'm sure that will come, you know. Uh, be careful, Joe Rogan. We're talking about you here. Uh, <laughs> we're coming for you. But, but it's, it, it's been, it was really cool. It's, it's really nice to talk to a guest who has kind of that network. So, uh, you know, along with uh, all of the ex-Scientologists and the other journalists who are interested in the story, I think this particular episode, I think it went to all continents. Right there was there were people. Yeah, the big uh, need for information about this topic. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. yeah, and and I think it comes down to the fact that people don't like bullies, right? So we talk about conspiracies, we talk about critical thinking, but what gets people particularly riled up is when somebody abuses power, and maybe that's why conspiracy theories are so attractive. They make people think that somebody somewhere is taking advantage of them. But I think a story like Scientology tells us, hey, somebody somewhere actually is taking advantage of those people, and here's the evidence, right? It's not, it's not a secret conspiracy. All right, so let's move on, if that's okay. We're going to segue towards today's show. Uh, so today we'll be talking about Jonestown, a cultish jungle commune where, in November 1978, nearly a thousand people were involved, some willfully and some not, in a massive murder-suicide. Jonestown is often presented as the classic example of how cultish groups sometimes reach a destructive end. And while it is true that Jonestown is exceptional in terms of the sheer number of people who died there, it was not that different in terms of its social dynamics from all the other cultish groups that we've been talking about in this series of, of the last few episodes. And like many other cultish groups, Jonestown and the people who live there uh, were led by a controlling and narcissistic leader, a man by the name of Jim Jones, who was perceived by his followers as a saint and a savior, a man who filled their heads with conspiracist plots, who broke down their individuality with long work days, poor nutrition, sleepless nights, corporal punishment, sexual abuse, and who repeatedly tested their loyalty with fake suicide rehearsals. So, Joan, what's interesting is this story happens pretty much all with American citizens, but living in Guyana in South America. So I was wondering, as a guy who grew up in South America, does this story have any kind of exposure among, uh, you know, people living in Latin America? Or do they just kind of figure it out later on, like it's just this bubble of American history in the wrong place? Probably the later, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because uh, no, in Chile we didn't know. Well, we remember you just mentioned it. We have our own kind of a cult, you know. Well, in the you south lived in your Chile. own Jonestown for we have twelve our, years. We have our own dictatorship, yeah. so we didn't actually have to worry about other people, you know. But this, yeah, I, I actually I, I learned about it uh, moving to Canada. 
yeah, this whole thing of uh, this Jim Jones gentleman, you know, it's, not, it's incredible the power, you know, to have a, a people setting their stuff, you know, to, to actually go and live in Guyana that's close to Venezuela. Uh, it was very close to the border of Venezuela. In fact, yeah. I learned that uh, the the Guyana Guyanese government mm-hmm. had um, had sold that land to People's Temple because they thought it would help them um, deal with a dispute over land with Venezuela as a way to kind of tell uh, the Venezuelans, yeah. well, look, we we occupy that land. We have people living there. Uh, they probably didn't care much about them, but at least there were people there, and they were not from Venezuela. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you a kind of a perverse question here. Uh, So you grew up in a military dictatorship, and here is, I wouldn't necessarily call it a religious commune. We'll we'll talk about that with with our guest today. Uh, But uh, it it was a kind of a commune run by a single uh, maniacal, you know, uh, mentally ill person. Do you think, to a certain extent, you were lucky (laughs) that... Military dictators at least have some some form of rationality. You know, they care that people work, and uh, you know, they're not they're not killing everybody uh, all over the place. Well, yeah, but in the sense, but it's different because uh, Pinochet regime had a, an economic, uh, you know, idea already. You know, coming from the Chicago School of Business, so they knew they couldn't actually kill everybody. You know, all the Everything that everyone that was actually against the, the regime, but they actually focalized in the Communist Party, Socialist Party, you know, a- anyone that actually was too left or okay. too outspoken, okay. you know, as uh, syndicalists, you know, people, important people that were okay. actually getting a lot of. Um, power on with the people, you know? Yeah. They have a lot of followers. Okay. You know? So it's like Jonestown, except Milton Friedman is the guy running the show. <laughs> yes. <exactly. laughs> okay. I, and that's probably, that's probably a little bit better. That's probably a little bit better. Okay, so I'm going to miss... Uh, uh, I'm going to give some introduction to our show, and then we'll get going. We'll get started, I should say. Uh, we'll get going to, to Guyana. <laughs> All right, so today we have an interview with Fielding McGee. He is an archivist and historian of Jonestown. And he is the director of a website called Alternative Considerations of Jonestown and People's Temple, which he administers with his wife, who is religious studies professor Rebecca Moore. Uh, and they do this in partnership with San Diego State University. Uh, Fielding and his wife are relatives of some of the victims of Jonestown. In fact, uh, Professor Moore's two sisters died in Jonestown. And sadly, they were also among the perpetrators of the massacre. So it's really hard here to say what is a victim from a perpetrator, because in Jonestown, you find people wearing both those hats at the same time. They may be victims of Jim Jones, but then other people were victims of them. Uh, Fielding is a great storyteller. Uh, I interviewed him last summer, and he and I spent uh, several hours on the phone uh, two or three times before we actually made this recording. Uh, And I think we could have probably gone on a few hours later. There was so much to talk about, so many questions that I had, and I've only been able to put some of the main things in our interview. Uh, It's a fascinating, it's a shocking, it's a tragic and a disturbing story about ideology, obsession, and mental illness. And that never really seems to give us pat answers. You know, uh, uh, Fielding will tell us that, you know, he's been working on this for 40 years and it's an ongoing story. You know, just like Tony Ortega with Scientology, it, you never seem to get to the bottom. There's always another scandal buried underneath the scandal. Uh, 
Now, given the length of the interview and the amount of information we covered, uh, John and I uh, were unwilling to cut down uh, you know, the, the, too much stuff from the interview. Uh, so we decided to do this into two separate parts. Uh, so today, uh, you're going to hear um, uh, the first part of the interview, uh, along with an essay, and it deals more with the history of Jonestown and the troubled mind of the leader, Jim Jones. And then the second part, which we'll be releasing subsequently in a different file, uh, is going to focus on the mass killing itself and on the paranoid thinking surrounding it. Uh, first, we're going to look at the fears of Jim Jones and his followers, who helped him commit the atrocity. And then secondly, we're going to look at the fears of many conspiracy-minded researchers uh, who see Jonestown as something a lot more sinister than just a paranoid cult, if there is such a thing more sinister than the murder-suicide of over 900 people. So, for those of you listening to us, find yourself a safe place and keep your kids close, but hopefully not within earshot as we bushwhack our way through the jungles of Western Guyana to shed some light on one of the darkest and most disturbing chapters in the history of cultish behavior. And if the kids are listening in, and they ask you to sleep in your bed tonight, well, don't say we didn't warn you. Chapter 1. The Messiah You Know and the Devil You Follow Are you Jesus Christ? Which, which Jesus? There's all kinds of Jesuses. There's a black Jesus down in Florida. He's having a good time. There's a Mexican Jesus in Mexico. I mean, there's all kinds of Jewish Jesus. I mean, Jesus, you know. There's all kinds of Jesus coming back everywhere. And nothing can stop it. It's a consciousness that lives in your mind. Da, 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 da. There is an idyllic village near Lake Tiberkul in central Russia, southern Siberia to be precise, but otherwise known as the middle of nowhere. There, far away from all traces of civilization, lives a religious community of about 4,000 people who call themselves the Church of the Last Testament. Their leader is Sergei Torop, a former Soviet soldier and traffic cop who now goes by the name of Visarion, which roughly translates as the giver of life. Visarion lives on a mountain, from which he might come down from time to time to utter prophecies and mingle with his doting believers. Decked in long flowing robes, long hair, a short beard, and the relaxed demeanor of a teenage stoner, Visarion looks a bit like the Jesus you'd find on a medieval relic and even more like a cross between novelist David Foster Wallace and the mad Russian monk Rasputin. Unsurprisingly, Vissarion presents himself as the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Yes, another one. Sent to earth in these final days to prepare his faithful for the coming apocalypse, which should happen any day now when the invisible planet Nibiru comes crashing into the earth. What hit us? Small asteroid fragments. This morning. How big were those? Those were nothing. The size of basketballs and Volkswagens. This new one you're tracking, how big? It's the size of Texas, Mr. President. It's what we call a global killer. The end of mankind. Half the world will be incinerated by the heat blast. And the rest will freeze to death in nuclear winter. Basically the worst parts of the Bible. 
Vissarion's teachings are a mixture of Orthodox Christianity, Buddhism, Socialism, Environmentalism, Gnostic self-healing, and a sprinkling of space opera. They are contained in his book, The Last Testament, which he styles an appendix to the Christian Bible. Whether or not we call this group a cult really depends on how we define the term, but there is little doubt that Viserion's church displays all of the cultish behaviors we've discussed in recent episodes. The veneration of a quasi-divine leader, a rigid separation between themselves and the world, strict rules regimenting social relationships, gender norms, and sexual practices, apocalyptic teachings that keep believers obsessed with the imminent end of the world, and total obedience to the leader against the believer's own health and well-being. Indeed, Viserion's rules include strict veganism, giving away all of one's savings and property to the church, restrictions against leaving the commune and communicating with outsiders, and, most dangerously, the prohibition of medical care, which has been the cause of several avoidable deaths, including those of children and infants. It is perhaps not surprising that Viserion and two of his aides were captured and arrested last fall and accused of psychological manipulation, endangering their followers' lives, and financial extortion. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. This isn't the first time the Russian authorities have imprisoned a peaceful individual who posed some cryptic threat to the political establishment. And maybe you're right. But when you look at the pattern of behavior displayed by Viserion, and its harmful impacts on his followers and their children, it's hard not to conclude that, left unchecked, this man's ideas and influence is going to result in some serious physical harm to others. At least, that's what many ex-members argued when they informed the authorities. My fellow French Canadians are no doubt better acquainted with the case of Roque Thériault, another self-proclaimed messiah. His followers called him Moses. From 1977 to 1989, Moses Thériault led a small, itinerant religious commune, a group he called the Anthill Kids, and he led them to various parts of Quebec and Ontario, preaching a mixture of Adventist millennialism, mystical detoxification, and his own violent brand of pietism, which included purifications, beatings, improvised surgeries, tooth extractions, forced enemas, adult circumcision, castration, limb amputation, sexual abuse, murder, and the desecration of corpses. I'll spare you the gruesome details on that last one. He gave his followers new names, cut them off from all outside contact, separated mothers from their own children, and compelled them all to dress the same, eat little, engage in ritual public confessions, engage in sex only with his approval, and usually with him, and show him complete submission. Given to recurring bouts of binge drinking, Moses Thériault terrorized his little community for nearly 12 years, a group made up mostly of women and the children he fathered with them. With promises of love and redemption in one hand, and emotional blackmail, threats of abandonment, and blood-curdling violence with the other. A complex relationship bound Roqueteriot and the members of his group, wrote cult researchers Mike Kropfeld and Marie-André Pellin. From the inception of the group, 
members talked about their love and admiration for this man, whom they described as infinitely good and all-powerful. Some members even came to accept the violence that Moses used against other members as proof of his favoritism towards them. End quote. It is hard for most of us to conceive that the members of such a group might prefer their slavery over the promise of freedom, and even less that they would return to him once they've been freed, visit him in prison, beget more children with him in conjugal visits, and to profess their enduring love and continued faith in his failed prophecies. And yet, like in many other cultish communities, that is exactly what happened. Moses Terrieux was a callous and charismatic alcoholic with a natural ability to manipulate the vulnerable into believing his interests were theirs, that his venial urges were part of God's will for their lives, and that their own conscience was the voice of the devil. The 2002 film Savage Messiah, a docudrama on the life of this miserable commune, offers us some insight into the reasons why Terrio's followers stuck with him for so long. Here is a scene in which a social worker, played by actress Polly Walker, visits a group of Terrio's female followers while he is absent. I know that when you met Rock, each one of you, separately, you fell completely in love with him. Because he saw who you really were. He saw your loneliness and longing, your lack of direction, your sorrow and anxiety. He saw you and he loved you because of and in spite of who you were. He promised to cherish you and protect you forever. He promised to show you the way with only one small condition that you give yourself over to him completely you surrender yourself to his love his vision his genius and even early on before the physical violence he could look at you with such cold contempt it was like a knife in the heart Always judging you for what you wore. Contrary opinion, the way you put butter on the toast in the morning. And so the fear begins, doesn't it? Fear that he'll stop loving you. Throw you out of the safety net that he's wrapped you in. Fear that makes you walk on eggshells, watching and listening for the slightest hint of disapproval or annoyance. Always tense. Afraid that you're going to say or do the wrong thing at the wrong time. And the first time he actually hits you. <gasps> it's a relief. And afterwards, he's so sorry. And his declarations of love are so sincere. That yes, you love him more than ever. Loving him is your life's work. And so it goes on. The beatings get worse. His odd, sadistic pleasures. He hurts and manipulates your children and he turns them against you. He keeps you underfed and underslept and overworked. And some days you don't even know your own name. Paula. 
How do you know all these things? Mm. I know because I've been there. I was married to a man like Rock. I was beaten senseless more times than I can remember. And through it all, I still thought, he loves me. He really loves me. This I know. And then one day, I understood. He didn't love me. He didn't know me at all. He was just in love with my fear of him. And without it, he was nothing. No one. Vissarion and Moses Thériot were very different leaders. The first was a brooding mystic, the other a raging psychopath. And yet the hold each of them had over their vulnerable flock through promises of purification, apocalyptic fear-mongering, isolation, disinformation, and behavior control, as well as the harm each of them caused to their disciples and innocent others, were not qualitatively different nor are they exceptional examples compared to many other devilish messiahs you probably heard of before. Such as Charles Manson, whose drugged-up bohemian flower children brutally murdered nine people in 1969, with the delusion that it would set off a race war. Or Rajneesh Puram's Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his lieutenant Ma Anand Sheila, who organized acts of bioterrorism in Oregon, and the attempted murder of a United States attorney, in 1984-85. Or Branch Davidian preacher David Koresh, whose disciples, after a set of bungled raids by the ATF and FBI in 1993, died in a raging inferno that killed 75 men, women, and children, an act that was proven to be a self-inflicted murder-suicide. Or Solar Temple Grandmaster Joseph DiMambro, who triggered a series of murders and suicides in Canada and Switzerland in 1994 when his authority had begun to slip. Or Heaven's Gate UFO guru Marshall Applewhite, who in 1997 incited 38 followers to kill themselves with him, having convinced them before that this would help them leave Earth aboard a visiting flying saucer. Or Scientology chairman David Miscavige, whose numerous acts of violence, intimidation, sequestration, and vengeance are well documented by many of his victims. And of course there's revolutionary pastor Jim Jones, who, well, you'll find out all about him soon enough. And this list is only a sample. So what pushes gurus like these to resort to deadly violence, especially against their own doting followers? It's hard to get into the mind of a cult leader, but many psychologists, sociologists, medical doctors, and other experts have identified some possible explanations. Psychologist Philip Zimbardo, for instance, believes that high-controlled environments produce their own particular behavioral scripts. He argues that people living in closed authoritarian societies easily slip into predetermined roles. On one hand, the ones in control tend to develop a heightened sense of entitlement. And not being limited by any outside controls, they push those in their care further and further towards their breaking point, until tragedy ensues if nothing is done to avert it. 
Those without control begin in a position of unalterable vulnerability and through repeated abuses become increasingly dependent and submissive, losing even the will to think for themselves. Zimbardo was especially interested in the power dynamic between prison guards and prisoners, and how the former grow abusive and the latter grow despondent. You may be familiar with the famous, and highly controversial, Stanford Prison Experiment, organized by Zimbardo in 1971, in which a group of student volunteers were subjected to sequestration and verbal abuse by fellow students, and took only a few days to grow passive, helpless, desperate, and self-destructive. It's a popular subject in many social psychology classes, and it lives on in many books, films, and documentaries. Here's a clip from The Stanford Prison Experiment, a 2015 film by director Kyle Patrick Alvarez. Good afternoon, gentlemen. This experiment will be an extension of my research into the effects prisons can have on human behavior. You're going to be pleased to know that you all have been chosen to be the prison guards. But under no circumstances whatsoever are you to physically assault the prisoners in any way. So remember, just as you were watching the prisoners, my graduate staff and I will be watching you. All right, gentlemen, we gonna have ourselves a lot of fun. Rule number one, prisoners must remain silent. This is an exercise period. Okay, is it just me or are these guys taking this thing a bit too seriously? Why don't you give me 20 push-ups? Look at this guy. Thinks he's John Wayne or something. You address me as Mr. Correctional Officer. This might be an interesting two weeks after all. Why don't you make up your bunk, 8612? I did, Mr. Correctional Officer. Well, that's not what I see. Hey, what are you doing here? Just me now! What was that? You just hit him. You're not supposed to hit him! Should we step in? No. Let the guards figure it out. Let's see where it goes. Good evening, gentlemen. How about we make this one a night to remember? This is all real. They won't let you go. They won't let us leave. Those are not prisoners. Those are not subjects. Those are boys, and you are harming them. The Stanford Prison Experiment has been used as a measuring stick by many academics and journalists to interpret all sorts of power dynamics, legal, economic, sexual, and racial. Think, for example, of the Abu Ghraib prison scandal that happened in 2004. Others have critiqued it as a shameful abuse and non-generalizable miscarriage of academic research. Wherever you stand on this issue, there is little doubt that this was an exceptional study of psychological abuse, one so shocking that Zimbardo was compelled to stop the two-week experiment only days after it started. Perhaps that was a good thing, but that doesn't mean it cannot give us some insight, Zimbardo argued in 1997, into the ease with which ordinary people could be led to engage in antisocial acts by putting them in situations 
where they felt anonymous, or they could perceive of others in ways that made them less than human, as enemies or objects. Zimbardo had designed his experiment to induce maximum disorientation, depersonalization, and deindividuation in his volunteer prisoners. He later claimed that he successfully showed that the careful arrangement of a dehumanizing environment, and not just the personalities of those who lived in that environment, caused them to develop either abusive or servile attitudes. Many see Zimbardo's experiment as reinforcing the findings of psychologist Stanley Milgram, whose obedience to authority experiment we discussed in episode 3.2, suggesting that humans are likely to ignore their own conscience and see violent abuse as acceptable, whether they dispense or receive it, when a trusted authority figure tells them that it is. Over the last few episodes, I've described the typical cult leader as a traumatizing narcissist, a phrase I borrowed from psychotherapist and cult researcher Daniel Shaw, to describe the mindset of a breed of cult leaders who control and demean their own flock, going so far as to take part in dehumanizing acts of violence, including torture, forced sex, suicide, and murder. Pathological narcissism can be defined as a pervasive need for admiration and a gross lack of empathy, often displayed in the following traits. Firstly, a grandiose sense of self-importance. Second, fantasies of unlimited power, brilliance, success, beauty, or love. Thirdly, a belief that he or she is unique and cannot be understood by quote-unquote normal people. And finally, a sense of entitlement manifested in exploiting others, great envy of others' successes, and arrogant behavior. By the way, if anyone in your life displays several of these traits, whether it be a guru, a boss, a spouse, or a coach, it may be wise for you not to assume that they will eventually change, and that you should right now, be carefully considering an exit strategy. Sociologist Gary Maynard argues that Jim Jones, David Koresh, and many other destructive cult leaders were most likely affected by narcissistic personality disorder, a condition that led them, when their dreams of success and control began to fade, to destroy themselves and everything they had, rather than risk losing more. Many narcissists, he explains, are, quote, very attractive, talented, inspiring, and charming, but this is mostly a front, intended to disarm their victims. The cleverer narcissists are at manipulating their followers and in hiding their dark side, the more powerful they will become and the more damage they can cause not only to their followers, but to the world as a whole. Narcissists, he continues, have a tendency towards feelings of vengeance against those they believe have harmed them by doing things that expose or weaken their position. As the window of power begins to fade and family and friends begin to isolate them, many narcissists panic emotionally. The fear of loss of power and the failed attempts to reassert control can sometimes lead the narcissist to create a permanent solution to the rapid implosion of their life. Finally, Dr. James Knoll, 
a forensic psychiatrist, draws a parallel between the self-destructive cult leader and the perpetrators of familicide, those parents who, having lost a sense of purpose, self-worth, or autonomy, choose to kill their own family members and then themselves, not out of spite, but out of a demented belief that their family cannot and should not be able to live without them. The despondent perpetrator of familicide is generally depressed, paranoid, intoxicated, or a combination of these. He fears his family could not cope in his absence, including their pets. He feels entitled to decide his victim's fate, and characterizes the murder of loved ones as an act of mercy or rescue. Confronted with overwhelming threats to their roles as providers, controllers, and central figures in the lives of their families, Noel goes on to explain, such individuals may become desperate, depressed, suicidal, and homicidal. When shame is combined with an inordinate need for control, violence may become deadly. The potentially familicidal, suicidal man is quite fragile and merely awaits a precipitating event to stimulate him to enact his pre-planned violence, end quote. This, in a nutshell, is the endgame of many cultic communities who latch their hopes for a better tomorrow to the cart of some smooth-talking self-promoter and surrender their hearts and their minds to his ego. And more than any other community, it is the story of Jonestown. Of course, no amount of psychologizing will bring back its victims, nor will it help those who are still grieving 40 years later to find closure. But learning about these stories may help us better identify some present dangers and keep us from letting ourselves be controlled by a seductive messiah with a forked tongue. Sadly, it seems the world has still got lots of learning to do. Chapter 2. It's Always Sunny in Guyana. Today we are speaking about a group called People's Temple, and a place called Jonestown. A commune carved out of the jungles of South America during the mid-1970s, Jonestown lives on in our collective nightmares as the place where over 900 followers of the Reverend Jim Jones reportedly engaged in an act of collective suicide on November 18, 1978. This is also where the disparaging cliché, Did You Drink the Kool-Aid, originates. Since then, and still today, most people would not hesitate to describe Jonestown and People's Temple as a cult. But is the word cult the most appropriate term to describe Jonestown and its members? And if so, what sort of cult was it exactly? And what exactly happened in Jonestown? What led 909 people to die, many of them willingly, in the largest single civilian fatality in American history, before the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. And what can we learn about these events concerning group dynamics, paranoia, and conspiracy thinking? This is why we are speaking with Fielding M. McGee III, in addition to having the most interesting name of any guest we've had on the show so far, evoking mental images of a British gentleman banker in a top hat, monocle, and ivory walking stick, Mr. McGee is research director of the Jonestown Institute and editor of the Jonestown Report, 
He also administers a research website called Alternative Considerations of Jonestown and People's Temple. Fielding McGee, welcome to Paranoid Planet. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So uh, I understand that your coronavirus self-isolation has been a lot more pleasant than for most of us. Could you explain why? Yes. Um, while the Jonestown Institute has had two previous physical addresses in North Dakota and in San Diego, California, we now live on an island in the Pacific Northwest off the Washington coast. Actually, our closest big city is Victoria, uh, BC. And um, the population of the island is about 7,000 people. There are about 2,000 people in the town where we live. And we live at the dead end of a dead end street. It's about as quiet and out of uh, out of the way as you can get and still be in the United States. So, so you're almost Canadian. Almost Canadian. Yeah. And there's a there are a lot of us who would like to that we look westward periodically. Uh, Victoria <laughs> straight west of us. Yeah. So yes. Well, last week you told me on the phone about an experience with a mascophobe. Could you explain that briefly? The experience with a with a lot of someone who didn't particularly like masks, coronavirus uh, masks. Oh, <laughs> yes. Uh, so my wife and I have been isolated on this island uh, since about the middle of March, and in my first sortie off the island um, about ten days ago. Uh, and the only way, by the way, that you can get back and forth to the island is on a ferry. So I went uh, to back to America, as we say here on the island. We went back to America, stopped at a Safeway store. I got out and a guy started screaming at me for putting on a mask to go into the Safeway. Now, in the particular this particular county here, you have to wear a mask to go into any kind of business. On the mainland, it's a lot looser. And he thought that I was showing some sort of liberal bias towards the rest of the world. Uh, by putting on a mask, and he called me all sorts of names that you can't really publish on a radio podcast. And after a while, I just walked away from him. But before I did, I did make sure that he saw me writing down his license plate because I did fear that he was going to key, key my car while I was out of out of sight. So I got his license plate and reported it to the police. It was pretty nasty. Okay, and uh, you haven't seen him again since. Mm -mm. Okay, good. He didn't follow you on the ferry? He did not follow me on the ferry. Okay, that's good. All right, so before we head off to Jonestown, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps uh, your studies, your career, and what you do now? Sure. So um, before I became um, one of the co-directors of the Jonestown Institute, I worked in uh, with public interest organizations uh, ranging from the anti-war movement in the early 70s to the anti-nuclear movement of the 1980s and the um, um, as well as other environmental organizations along the way. Um, all, all along the way since 1978, both my wife and I have studied and read and um, visited people's temple sites both in the United States and in Guyana, but it wasn't until 1999 uh, that we actually started the Jonestown Institute. And part of it was due to the fact that um, the 19, in 1998, at the 20th anniversary of Jonestown, 
all the stories that came out, all the news coverage, all the magazine articles really did appear as though they had been written or could have been written the day after the deaths in Jonestown in 1978, that there hadn't been anybody who had learned a single thing about People's Temple in that entire time. And so that was the genesis for the Jonestown Institute and for the website. Uh, it was to introduce the people of People's Temple as human beings and not just as, as bodies rotting in the jungle sun. Uh, it was to give them names and pictures and families and biographies, and also to uh, really put out a lot of the materials, uh, the documents that the temple had generated that sort of um, let the temple speak in its own words. And so from that it emerged um, the website Alternative Considerations to Jonestown and People's Temple, and basically it's an alternative to the main narrative um, and it's available at jonestown.sdsu for San Diego State University.edu. So that's jonestown.sdsu.edu. Now, when you say the uh, the main narrative, are, are, would you use the phrase official story like some people do? You're not suggesting there was a, a conspiracy to hide what happened at Jonestown? No, I'm, I'm saying that basically there was a story that emerged from Jonestown pretty much right away. Um, but it really, uh, and, and for the most part, the, the factual information, the number of bodies that, that were found, you know, how long People's Temple had, uh, had existed, what the history, what the biography of Jim Jones was about, that was pretty much, um, you know, we really didn't have too much uh, quibble with that because those are just factual kinds of things. But, but, the, but sort of the denigration of the people who were in the organization, um, uh, considering them all cultists, all brainwashed zombies. Those weren't the people that we knew. And so we um, just decided that it was important and time to humanize the people and to re uh, restore them to the dignity and respect that they deserved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us briefly the types of documents that our listeners might find if they go to the, um, the Alternative Considerations of Jonestown website? Yep. Um, there are scores and scores of, uh, actually hundreds and hundreds of um, audio tapes which are up as MP3s in which you can hear uh, the people of Jonestown and especially its leader, uh, Jim Jones, um, speaking. So you can hear them in their own voices. Uh, there are meetings in Jonestown from 1977 and 1978. There are sermons that Jim Jones gave. Um, going back to the be beginning of People's Temple back in the late 50s. Um, in addition, there are um, um, documents of uh, um, minutes of meetings and, uh, you know, strategy meetings on how they address various problems, um, uh, both facing them as an organization. And then there's, um, the, and this is the only place in the world that has this, um, a listing of the people who died. And um, when you go through that list, as you go through and look at some of the names, they are all hot linked to biographical boxes that take you to descriptions of them and pictures and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. We also have other photographs of, uh, of life in Jonestown that show, um, that, that show what the organization was like. Uh, so um, your wife, Rebecca Moore, who was a retired professor of religious studies, 
Uh, also has a personal connection to Jonestown. Uh, we'll she get does. into that a little bit later on, but could you briefly explain to us why Jonestown is more than just an academic interest for you? It's a, it's a personal family story. It is. Um, so in uh, my, my wife, Rebecca Moore, had uh, two sisters who died in Jonestown. We also had a four-year-old nephew who died in Jonestown. And um, so we, we had not... We knew of People's Temple. Um, of course, my wife knew of her sister's involvement since her older sister, Carolyn, joined the organization in 1968. And, um, and her younger sister, Annie, joined a few years later. Uh, Becky is the middle, Rebecca as the middle child, uh, did not join. She was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And, um, but uh, uh, we became interested almost immediately um, in part uh, because Becky's younger sister, Annie, had written a letter that talked about um, a conspiracy against People's Temple that might result in their deaths. And we received that letter shortly after the deaths, which made us kind of curious, more than curious, um, uh, really obsessed with um, trying to figure out what actually had happened down in Jonestown. And that uh, led to Becky writing um, upwards of, I think she's about at seven books now on Jonestown and People's Temple and the website itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, the nephew you had who died in Jonestown, uh, his name was Jim John, is that correct? It was Jim John Prokes. He was the, um, uh, and he was the son of Jim Jones. So Jim Jones uh, with Carolyn, uh, the older. That's sister. correct. Yeah. Okay. And this was known widely? It was known quite widely, yeah. Um, actually, uh, when Carolyn became pregnant uh, with Jim's child, um, her parents were living in Berkeley, and uh, People's Temple was still in San Francisco. So Carolyn just went across the bay to stay with her parents in Berkeley. The story was, was that, uh, that the members of People's Temple were told um, was that Carolyn was had been on a mission down to Mexico and had been arrested and had been raped in a Mexican jail by a guard and was bearing his child. But as soon as anyone saw chemo, they saw Jim Jones. It was no secret at all. Okay. Uh, I, and I think I saw him in, in some of the documentaries uh, in mm -hmm. Jonestown, right? He, he, he bears a strange resemblance to uh, a young uh, Jim Jones. He does. Yeah, so it, it, it's hard to it's hard to deny that there was a uh, that that he was a, the product of a, of an adulterous relationship between Jim Jones and, and no one father. and no one tried to and no one tried to no one um, everyone knew and accepted that uh, that Jim John was uh, was Jim's son. Um, he just he had the name last name of Prokes. Uh, there was a you know what they refer to as a temple marriage. It was a marriage pretty much on paper between Carolyn and. Um, and Michael Prokes, who was the uh, the Temple's publicist, and um, but that was really just to give John legitimacy. Okay, okay, all right. Well, let's move on to talk more specifically about uh, the history of Jonestown. 
there, there exist many useful resources that our listeners can go to to obtain general understanding of what happened mm -hmm. at Jonestown and the events that led up to it. Uh, two that I found particularly interesting as I was preparing for this program uh, was there's a recent podcast titled Transmissions from Jonestown, uh, which is quite complete. It actually contains a lot on conspiracy theories, so a lot of our listeners might want to go there to get some details on that. And uh, there's also a 2006 documentary titled Jonestown, The Life and Death of People's Temple, which I watched again last night, and, and I found that it, it, it's quite good. Now, it would be hard for them to follow our conversation today if at least we didn't cover some of that uh, that that historical uh, information uh, right now. So could you summarize, and I realize that this is an ambitious task, mm -hmm. could you summarize the life of Jim Jones and of his movement? So Jim Jones was born in 1931 in the small town of Lynn, Indiana. Um, his mother was, uh, uh, was the breadwinner for the family, and his father was a World War I veteran who had been injured during World War I uh, with mustard gas and apparently was not much, uh, he was, he kind of hung around the town, but he really wasn't much of a presence in Jim's life. Uh, his mother provided most of his influence for him. Jim had a, um, really not a lot about Jim's childhood is really known. There are stories both that Jim told and that other people told about his life but uh, as a child, but many of them are suspect um, uh, on Jim's part because he was known to exaggerate things and on other people's part because a lot of those stories were, uh, were, were told after the deaths in Jonestown and there's nothing like having 900 people uh, dead because of you to help poison the well in terms of um, getting a, uh, any kind of legitimate biography out. So there's, there really is not a lot of reliable information about his childhood. Now, I, if I can interrupt you, um, sure. I had read that there was, a, there was an antagonism between him and his father over uh, a black friend that Jones right. had as a kid, and this is believed to be the genesis of his, his, his hatred of racism and his mm -hmm. endorsement very early on, in fact, before, I think before even Martin Luther King came on the scene, uh, mm -hmm. of, uh, of equality between blacks and whites. That is Jim's. Uh, that is Jim's story, and there's and and even if it isn't true, it go, it goes to um, serve his uh, overall um, way that he wanted to present himself, which was as uh, which was recognizing racism in Indiana in the 40s and 50s, which was quite um, powerful for a white man to do. Um, also, as a minister to try to integrate churches, it was a, uh, quite a dramatic stand to take. So um, uh, his commitment to uh, integration, uh, to having, uh, to, to lifting blacks out of poverty and into the general American society was absolutely genuine, mm -hmm. um, even if some of the origins of it are kind of uh, still shrouded in mystery. Okay. Uh, and then he becomes a preacher in a, is it a Pentecostal uh, type church yeah. in Indiana? Yes. He, and he was in, in a couple of churches, including a Methodist church. And uh, he had bounced in, in and out of a couple of churches. But um, he did he did eventually found People's Temple uh, in part because uh, a church that he had had um, 
didn't want to have as many blacks in the church um, as he, uh, I mean, they, they were discriminating against blacks. So he founded his own church where everyone was was equal, and he made sure that that blacks were um, were were welcome. And he brought in several whites from the previous church that he had been in, and so the church was really quite integrated from the start. Um, uh, he he went so far. This is a story that his son Stephen Jones told later on, but this was also true in Indiana. That um, when people sat in the pews, Jim tried to make sure that that uh, up and down the pews it was black, white, black, white, black, white, uh, so that people, anyone walking into the church, would see integration um, pretty pretty dramatically. And as Stephen says, after a while, it became just a matter of. Uh, of, of habit and, you know, people incorporated it in, into their personalities. So it was genuine. You know, it started off a, a, as a genuine church um, uh, in the Christian tradition um, and then eventually began to drift from that uh, initial Christian message. Okay, so uh, the integration was important from the beginning. Uh, there may have been, I'm wondering, as, a, as a kind of in a Freudian sort of way, there was, a, there was an element of, of parasite, of trying to be very different than his father. Uh, and then he makes this trip to Brazil. Could you tell us a bit about that? So Jim and his family, um, and at that point there were, uh, he had married a woman named Marceline Jones, um, and uh, they had one natural child, uh, Stephen Jones, and he adopted several children, um, including uh, Jim and Marcelin were known as the first um, white family in Indiana to adopt a black child. But they also adopted a couple of um, Korean children, and they also adopted um, a another white child or two. They ended up with what they call the Rainbow Family. So this family of uh, Jim Jones uh, went down to Brazil um, in the early 1960s and, there, and spent a year down there um, ostensibly on missionary work. Now, no one really, really knows what happened down there. Uh, the only thing that we, that we do know for certain is uh, a couple of things. First of all, the temple itself began to fall apart without Jim's leadership and presence. Um, the number of uh, um, the amount of financial support that it got started to go down, and the people who were uh, uh, stand-ins for him on the pulpit just didn't have the same fire and gravitas and charisma that Jim had. Um, so after about a year, uh, seeing that the church was heading towards collapse, Jim did return, but he returned as a different man. Um, down in Brazil, uh, he had seen poverty such as he had never seen before. And he thought that he had seen um, uh, that type of poverty, that type of, of um, de uh, deprivation in central Indiana, uh, in Indianapolis in the 1950s, but it wasn't anything like he saw when he was down in Brazil. So he came back and he started to both um, rail against a Christian God that would allow this to happen, and also to present People's Temple as the church, uh, a church of God where people could do God's work. And it really did start off as being uh, a place to do God's work. And in other words, if God wasn't going to do it, they were, they were going to do it. 
and then that later um, became uh, th- that message even started to shift as well. So a Christian church, but that is kind of doing God's work for Himself, uh, and, and therefore kind of giving up the the Christian basis and adopting more socialist uh, and civil rights ideas to replace it. Would that be right? He did. He did, but he still continued to use the Bible. I mean, Jim was a very um, smart man. Uh, he was very well read, and he uh, he read in a number of religious traditions, including theosophy, but he also knew his Bible, and he would use the Bible both as a way to, um, to, to denigrate the Bible. In other words, he would kind of tear it down at times and talk about the hypocrisies and the injustices and inconsistencies within the Bible, but he also used it as a way to um, defend what it was that they were doing, and <clears throat> even later, as um, they drifted further and further apart from traditional Christian churches, would use Bible quotes such as, ye all are gods, to say, you know, God isn't the only one that's up there. I mean, we are all gods as well. And then later, of course, that became that he was God. Mm-hmm. And and at that point, of course, uh, even though he's quoting, the continues to quote the Bible liberally all the way through the time in San Francisco, um, they are no longer, really no longer could be considered uh, a Christian church. Do you think his faith was genuine at some point, or did it always seem a bit like a facade? There's some debate on that. I have heard enough of his tapes from early Indiana years that I believe that he was genuinely um, Christian. Okay. okay. Um, and there are a couple of examples that I could give to you, but there are, um, I have no doubt that, that uh, he started off that way and then eventually sort of turned from believing in God um, just because he saw people doing what God wouldn't do. And then eventually, who needs God? Okay. That was sort of the path that he took. Okay. So uh, does he have a blow up in Indiana? Because he, at some point he decides to just move his congregation to California and about 100 people or so follow him. Right. Uh, what, what pushed him to leave Indiana? So um, <clears throat> Jim, throughout his life, including on the last day, was rarely an actor. He was more of a reactor. Um, he had uh, thought about moving to California. That was kind of the, the, the carrot part. Um, because there had been an article in Esquire magazine that talked about the, the few places on Earth that would be safe following a nuclear holocaust, places where radiation would not reach. And one of them was in Northern California, north of San Francisco. And um, so it was in his mind to go to this area north of San Francisco. The thing that really started to um, um, precipitate the the move, though, was he had been named as uh, part of um, the Indianapolis um, Human Rights Commission. and. and he was getting a lot of grief for that. And eventually it just became uh, too much for, he felt as though he had kind of worn out his welcome in Indianapolis and there were greener places to go. 
but it it wasn't in other words it wasn't just that he went to california he did well flee from indiana would be too strong a word but he he did feel as though it was time for them to go okay so he heads to north california and then uh within a couple years his movement really takes off i think it was in ukiah um mm-hmm. and uh it's redwood valley is that the same part or is that two different places no they're they're pretty much um right up against each other right okay. ukiah is Ukiah is a small town about 90 miles north of of um, San Francisco and Redwood Valley and Potter Valley and some of the other places that you'll see in t- temple documents. Those are all uh, surrounding areas, uh, unincorporated towns. Um, the thing about Ukiah was that it was very, very, very white. It was very rural. Um, and so a lot of the people in the area were a little disconcerted about all these black people moving in. And um, they had a, a few, um, you know, it, it took them a while to become acclimated to the community. And in some ways they never did. It wasn't, they didn't really find a home until they started to expand um, their services and then, then eventually move their headquarters um, to San Francisco. They, they bought a church down there. They also bought a church in Los Angeles and made sure that they were in the heart of the city, heart of the, the black districts of the two cities. And really, that's where they uh, uh, their memberships started to grow and where he had the kind of congregation that he wanted to have. Okay, that's about the time when your sister-in-law joins the group. Uh, Carolyn joined while they were still in um, in Ukiah. Okay. So she joined back in 1968. And even when Annie joined in 1972, the, the the group had not officially moved down to San Francisco, and so she she spent a little bit of time in um, uh, the Ukiah area. But both of them did go down to um, San Francisco. People's Temple did maintain a presence up in Redwood Valley and Ukiah uh, even after they, in other words, they had three locations. The one up in Redwood Valley ended up being more of their sort of service center. They had um, a home for, uh, they had senior citizen homes. They had uh, a, a home for you know, um, young adults with, uh, with mental health problems. In other words, they were really performing some social services. And that was one of the reasons that they were, uh, that they became as influential and as uh, well accepted as they were, even in a, in a fairly conservative rural area such as Ukiah. Mm-hmm. So they take on basically uh, this 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 uh, very dynamic social gospel role, maybe with less gospel and more social, uh, and that's what really makes them grow, right? Could you could you explain some of the uh, some of the reasons why um, uh, People's Temple was so popular, uh, particularly with 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 African Americans, uh, right? So in San Francisco, which is really where. People's Temple had its heyday. They located themselves in the district of town called the Fillmore, which, which as I mentioned, was mainly black. Um, and they provided so, a lot of services that the, that the people of the town of that area weren't getting. A lot of the people who started to come to temple services were people who had migrated from the south in the years right after World War II. Um, that's where the jobs were. They felt as though there would be less segregation in San Francisco and Western cities. 
And but now all the people who had like you know come back from the war and then migrated west, instead of being in their twenties um, and thirties as they were in in the nineteen forties, they were now in their um, they were now in their sixties, and and a lot of the um, uh, men had uh, a lot of them had retired. A number of the men had died, and so the temple um, services become increasingly filled with especially elderly black women. And, um, and the temple is providing them with services. Uh, when you come to people's temple, you have, um, you have a, a wide range of, op- of services that you can do. If you have, are, are having problems with your welfare office officer, um, you can go down to the welfare office and you would have someone from People's Temple standing by your side to help you navigate the bureaucracy. If one of your children or grandchildren was in trouble with the law, there would be someone from People's Temple who would be standing next to them um, in in court to defend this person who had been thrown in jail. Um, and if, if you were homebound and you needed to get um, something like either groceries or getting to a medical doctor, it was the temple that would help you actually get there. So, um, and those are the kinds of services that the temple was providing. Moreover, most of the other churches in town were not providing it. So even though, uh, um, so, so basically the temple was upsetting the some of the other churches in town because all these other churches were talking about what was going to happen in the afterlife and the temple was saying, you can have those kinds, uh, that kind of dignity and respect now. Okay, so could we say that what attracted people, they came first for the Jim Jones show, but they stayed mm-hmm. for the social services. They did. Okay. And even, you know, Jim Jones, um, you know, one of the reasons that people came is that Jim Jones theoretically could um, could conduct healings. Uh, the, the faith healing tradition of uh, some of the churches in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, of course, most, if not all, of the healings were faked. Um, and uh, but even as Jim Jones was up there at the pulpit uh, conducting these services with these uh, healings, um, there are nurses in the back of the church taking people, you know, the the blood pressure and checking for sickle cell anemia and giving small physical exams to anyone who wants to come in and ask them for it. So, you know, they are getting services. Okay. Now, in San Francisco, Jones started becoming uh, very politically active, uh, Mm -hmm. either campaigning or helping uh, various politicians. I don't know how much of that was to improve his own standing or if he was just trying to use the politicians to help his movement. Uh, But that Mm -hmm. landed him in hot water. So um, uh, two journalists, Kilduff and Tracy of a magazine called New West, they, they publish an expose, or they're about to publish an expose on, on Jones. And tell us, what was that about, and why did that completely transform the history of People's Temple? Right. So um, Jim Jones had become more political. He knew that to get things done in the United States and in San Francisco, you needed to, uh, to involve yourself in the political process. He um, would hold... Uh, um, excuse me, helped uh, various politicians, helped various public interest groups around town, um, and really kind of provide the crowds uh, for a lot of these 
demonstrations and events that that they needed. In other words, if if you were a politician and you um, and you could get next to Jim Jones and you were running for something, all you had to do was make a phone call, and at your next rally, you would have several hundred people more in the streets there than than you might otherwise have. So that was the kind of it was really kind of a grassroots sort of effort um, to get people. They got people out there, and that kind of stuff becomes noticed, and it it sort of feeds upon itself, right? The the politicians um, uh, end up sort of owing uh, Jim Jones a favor, not in a you know not in any kind of um, corrupt sense or anything like that, but it's like th- there was a there were quid pro quos. In other words, uh, after Jones, um, the, it, uh, in a perfectly legitimate kind of way. Um, helped to get out the vote to to get George Moscone elected the mayor of San Francisco. I believe that was 1975. You know, Jones reminded him of that a year later, and Jones became chair of the housing um, housing commission in San Francisco. But you know, as I say, it wasn't it wasn't it was just you know political favors. It was a return of a political favor. There were allegations that. Um, there started to be allegations of um, misconduct within the church. Um, there were allegations that there were that there was voter fraud in some of the campaigns. Um, a lot of them turned out not to be true, uh, but the you know the pressure was on, and there were in fact um, uh, the the truth is probably somewhere in between some of the allegations that the critics made. And some of the defenses that the that the temple made. In other words, the temple would say nothing like that happened, and the critics would say, "Look at all these terrible things that are going on." So, can we um, list them briefly? Like, was sir? there, I think, uh, accusations of tax evasion? There were. Okay. Uh, you know, so so the thing is, you know, there were investigations of the temple by the IRS, and it turned out to be unfounded. There were uh, allegations that the temple had taken down a bunch of foster children to Jonestown. There was exactly one. Um, a lot of the a lot of the allegations really did turn out to be unfounded. Yeah. The types of things that that were um, that did turn out to be true was that there had been uh, physical discipline of some of the of the members. Um, but you know, basically, for a lot of the people who spoke to New West Magazine, and and it was really the the people who had left the temple with a chip on their shoulder and who had, um, you know, trading charges back and forth with the temple. Um, uh, th- those, th- they were personal grievances. A lot of them had merit and um, they just, you know, found a, um, a, an audience in New West Magazine. And up until that point, you know, People's Temple had been kind of the golden child within San Francisco. And it's the article when it came out, showed that the sort of the emperor had no clothes. Okay. But were there not also allegations of sexual abuse uh, by Jones? Mm-hmm. Yes. And those, there I were. think, later on we'll find out were, uh, many of them were proved to be true. Many of those did prove to be true. That's correct. Yes. Okay. So as a result of the expose from this magazine, uh, Jones doesn't stick around uh, San Francisco to defend his reputation. He packs up and decides to go to South America. And he right. brings several hundreds of people with him to this uh, this this compound, this uh, what we call a commune uh, mm-hmm. that he had already been developing for a few years in in Guyana. So, right. could you tell us a little bit how things um, uh, look when he gets to 
uh, this place that is called Jonestown, or it becomes called Jonestown, and how things start going downhill from there. So Jonestown had been in the in the process of being developed for a number of years. The temple had decided that the that the United States itself was too corrupt, too racist, too sexist, too everything for it uh, for for them to be able to have much impact, and um, and they decided that they were going to build their own community in um, someplace else. There is a, a history in in the United States of utopian movements. This one was a little different in that uh, the, the people who were going to build this community looked outside of the borders of the United States and went down to Guyana. They chose Guyana for a couple of reasons. One, because it um, was an English-speaking country. Two, because it was a majority black country. Three, because it had uh, a, a somewhat socialist government. And they um, were able to strike a deal with the uh, prime minister of Guyana to build this um, community out in the middle of the jungle. There were several things that the prime minister of Guyana got out of this deal, um, including the fact that there were going to be some uh, Americans that were developing a community out in his jungle um, and, and thereby showing that um, he was on a campaign to, to get people, uh, his own citizens, to start moving into the interior of the country. So the land that they got was was cheap. Um, they had a 99-year lease, and they really converted jungle into a um, into a, a thriving community. The um, that had been in development for a number of years before the New West article came out in 1977. The idea had been for for um, I think there were about 50 people in Jonestown at the time that the mass migration started. The general idea had been that, that 100, 150 people would go down at a time until the population reached uh, a peak of about 750. That was sort of the master plan. Um, they did that. That plan was so that as people came in, they could see what the shortcomings of the, of the infrastructure they had, what adjustments they needed to make before they brought in the next number of people. So when they brought in all those number of people all at once, um, in some ways, that was kind of the beginning of the end. Uh, they just, you know, all the problems that they had, they had to they had to fix on the spot. I mean, some people have compared it to, you know, trying to tune up a car while the, a car is going down the road at 60 miles an hour. Um, so the, the, the community, in some ways, was in trouble from the start. Also, when Jim first arrived, he had gone down there a number of times before, but the, the people down there were... Um, who had helped to build the community ahead of Jones's arrival and definitely ahead of the arrival of a thousand people um, were, you know, were dedicated to the cause. They were, they were um, proud of their work. They were living the, the way that they wanted to live. And all of a sudden they're just, um, the, the place is completely overwhelmed and Jim sort of starts to exercise his authority and they believe some of the authority that he's doing is fairly arbitrary and things are beginning beginning to collapse, and Jim is trying to rescue it by blustering, by threatening, by cajoling, by uh, setting up straw men in terms of conspiracies out there to get them, and things just start to turn sour. 
This episode of Paranoid Planet is brought to you by those college professors who like to torture their students with trolley problems. A runaway train is hurtling down the track towards a family of illegal immigrants trying to flee their horrible life in the old country. Do you A. Toggle the switch that will shift the train onto a different track where Honey Boo Boo is throwing a hissy fit? Do you B. Push a second-rate Hollywood actor in front of the train, thereby saving the migrants from certain death, while you spend the rest of your life in prison? Soylent Green is made out of people. <laughs> Soylent Green is people! Do you C. Throw yourself in front of the train, whilst shaking your fist to the sky, blaming God for the problem of pointless suffering? Or do you D, sit back in your favorite lawn chair, crack open a cold one, and enjoy the absurd theater of life that is the human condition? Or perhaps you prefer E, to make your way to the nearest liberal arts college and rough up the ethics teacher who hatched this perverted mind game. Why are they arresting me? Can someone do something here? Let me just say arrested? because it's a very important question. What did I do? Get off the If you answered C to throw yourself in front of the train, we promise to say nice things about you at your funeral. If you answered anything else, we recommend a good therapist and a long break from reading moral philosophy. I think it was uh, Jones's own son, Stephen, who said uh, things were quite pleasant in Jonestown until his father arrived there. And then he said the kind yep. of darkness set in and he became kind of a, an autocrat, a kind of a, uh, you know, yes. a, a banana yeah. republic dictator of sorts. And and Jim, uh, excuse me, and Stephen was one of the people who had helped to build it. So he would know. Yeah. Um, and there are a number of other people who just who, you know, when they first arrived in Jonestown before even a few weeks before Jones arrived, you know, talked about it still being fairly wonderful and everybody living together in in uh, harmony. And uh, but as soon as uh, you know, on the other hand, there's there's a guy named Eugene Smith, for example, a survivor from Jonestown, who um, as soon as he got off the truck uh, arriving into Jonestown, thought I've made a big mistake. Mm. Um. And then a, a group called Concerns, uh, Concerned Relatives, there were mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them were former members or parents of, of members of, of, uh, uh, of People's Temple. Uh, they mm -hmm. organize um, and they pressure a congressman, Leo Ryan, to begin an investigation of Jonestown. So can you tell us a little bit about the Concerned Relatives and how this led to a kind of a, uh, putting Jim Jones in a very tight place? Right. So... The Concerned Relatives was an oppositional group. As you mentioned, a lot of them were, uh, had been former members, and a lot of them who had once revered Jim Jones now hated Jim Jones. Um, some of the people who had joined the temple uh, or who joined Concerned Relatives were people who had, you know, when they came into the temple, had turned over all of their assets 
to the temple, um, you know, voluntarily. I mean, voluntarily, we don't know what kind of pressure was put upon them to, to do so. But a lot of people, when they went into the temple, turned in all their assets, including their real estate. And so there are some people, when they left, wanted to get their money back. And, you know, the church wasn't having any of it. They said, no, you gave this, you gave this to us and that property is gone. We've sold it and we're using the money to, you know, to help uh, the goals of the church. Um, there are also people who felt as though that um, who left because of the uh, the abuses and the, um, the 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 sexual improprieties and some of the arbitrary what they felt were arbitrary <clears throat> decisions of Jones and his leadership. And there were some people who just had problems with the with the not only with Jim himself but with the some of the other leaders, um, including Carolyn. Uh, Carolyn at that point, Annie uh, became part of the leadership, but that wasn't really until you know Jonestown itself. So um, the uh, the concerned relatives started to started a campaign, uh, really to um, uh, especially after Jim went down to Jonestown, and they felt as though their relatives had been taken down against their will. And, you know, the thing is, is that the temple really did some dumb, dumb things along the way that didn't really help their cause. I mean, one of the things that I found, um, this was only a couple of years ago that I found this, found a bunch of records of People's Temple at the California Historical Society in San Francisco. And basically, there were a lot of people who had written their relatives from uh, Guyana to say, you know, I'm down here. I'm having fun. I'm going to be down here for a while. Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. And for some reason, they, the temple didn't send those letters. Hmm. And I just don't, you know, I really don't understand why. It was just kind of a, if they had, you know, so in other words, for many of the people, many of the relatives of the people who were in Jonestown, they had no idea where their relatives had, had disappeared to, where their sons and daughters had gone, where their uncles and fathers had gone. And as for the people in Jonestown, they thought they'd done the right thing because they had. And the temple just didn't kind of go through. So they, they kind of shot themselves in the foot. You know, they didn't, a lot of things they did, um, it had the effect of alienating them from the relatives. And, you know, the, rel the concerned relatives became even more, Powerful because of it. Mm -hmm. And so Leo Ryan comes down to Guyana, and mm -hmm. he's kind of surprised that a lot of the people seem to be having a good time. They're really enjoying it. Uh, some yep. uh, news footage appears him to actually, uh, uh, you know, be surprised that it's not uh, the, uh, the the uh, the concentration camp he was expecting to find. But I think a, a dozen or fifteen or so people ask him to leave, and this. <laughs> Uh, and although I don't know if it was the media or if it was Congressman Ryan, because he was a pretty charismatic figure as well, it just did not sit with uh, Jim Jones. And then on the morning that they were leaving, I think uh, Leo Ryan gets knifed by one of the members of, of, of People's Temple, and then mm -hmm. everything kind of goes sour. So could you summarize those last few hours? Yeah, so so actually um, there were probably more than the 15 that wanted to go. And as a matter of fact, um, you know, once – once people realized that pe people were actually leaving, you know, who knows how many people would have actually gone out. And Ryan and his aides were planning to uh, actually try to make arrangements to come back and take back whoever wanted to go. 
But, you know, and, and there were people in the temple, um, including my sister-in-law, Carolyn, who was a part, member of the leadership, who said, just let these people go. I mean, this was earlier. This was before Ryan's trip. Mm-hmm. Um, just let these people go. If they're discontented, let them go. We don't need them. We've got, you know, we, we, can, we can survive without them. But for Jim, losing even one person was a slap in the face. And so um, he, he was totally uh, opposed to anyone leaving, and he was definitely opposed to anyone leaving with Congressman Ryan because as opposed to other people who left, um, I mean, there had been other people who had left Jonestown um, during the uh, time that the, um, that the organization was down there. But, you know, there wasn't that big of a deal about it because they just left. But these people were going to be very public. I mean, th- their departures were going to be very public. They were going to play right into the hands of the, of the temple's arch enemies and the concerned relatives. And Jones just wasn't going to have it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ryan was attacked uh, shortly before he left uh, to go to the airstrip. Uh, at Port Kaituma, where he had phoned in the day before with his staff and and some reporters. Um, The attack was um, more theater than an actual um, attack, but it did leave Ryan shaken. I mean, there's, you know, whether someone actually means to stab you, if someone comes running at you with a knife, yeah, that's going to have an effect upon you. And so a lot of the goodwill he might have felt towards the temple at that point uh, probably evaporated. Okay, so uh, so the, they there's a death squad or what we could call a death squad, a group of armed people who um, fall on Ryan and uh, the, the the defectors as they were called. Uh, I mm-hmm. think five or six people get killed there. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, is there any doubt in your mind that Jim Jones ordered this hit? No, no. So it was Jim Jones uh, who saw these people as such a threat to 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 his power or to his freedom that he felt that uh, they had to go. That's correct. That's right. Yeah, and then yeah. Jones precipitates something that appears to have been planned for a while, or at least mm-hmm. it had been discussed, it had been rehearsed, and that's this mm-hmm. idea of a revolutionary suicide. So, tell us a little bit about what this meant to Jones, and mm-hmm. and just kind of how how it played itself out uh, briefly, if possible. So, um, for Jim Jones had had an apocalyptic vision. Uh, throughout most of his ministry as head of People's Temple. He believed uh, he, and and one might even say that he had a death wish, that he looked like that he was going to go out uh, making a very political statement with what he called revolutionary suicide. Now, there is a concept of revolutionary suicide which had been articulated by the Black Panthers um, during the late 1960s, and Jim Jones, in fact, appropriated a lot of the Black Panthers' rhetoric, but he used it for his own purposes. Um, now, throughout the, the last couple of years in San Francisco, he increasingly started to talk about death, and um, and it was, but it, it seemed like it was more in the in the context of if they attack us, we will defend ourselves to the last person, and if all of us die then we will have died for a noble cause. To go, and go guns blazing. So to go, go down guns blazing. And even in the last year when people, you know, when when uh, uh, Rebecca was receiving letters from her sisters and they were talking about, you know, dying for what they believed in, that's what she thought that they meant. And that's what everybody who, who received these types of letters 
thought that they meant that they were going to be, you know, stand up to, um, you know, to, to the forces that were attacking them and were, were going to defend themselves um, all the way to the end. They did not realize that they were actively going to, uh, to take their own lives. Um, and so Jim on the last day talks about revolutionary suicide again. And, um, and so over the, uh, over the years, uh, revolutionary suicide had been, you know, the, he talked about dying, you know, because the Guyanese government was, wasn't going to give them something. So they were going to, you know, really use revolutionary suicide as a way to show up the Guyanese government or because they thought they were being attacked on the outside by uh, American mercenaries or this or that. There were probably, there probably been about a dozen uh, articulations of revolutionary suicide that I've heard Jim make. But on the last day, um, it was that, you know, they had just killed a congressman. They were going to be invaded, that that, that was inevitable. Um, and so before they got there and tortured their seniors and tortured their babies, they were going to all die first. They were going to die by their own hand to um, and thereby make a, a, a dramatic political statement. Mm -hmm. So they used cyanide and they I believe they, they started with the children. Right. Uh, which probably would have led a lot of people who were opposed to the suicide to go along with it once their children are, are, are dying or dead. Whether it was uh, planned or whether it was serendipity, um, Jones, uh, you know, in a macabre sense, Jones did start by asking the, the parents to kill their children. Mm -hmm. And um, the excuse was, you know, we don't want to have any of our children alive when the Guyana Defense Force, you know, invades where we are. Um, in other words, the adults can defend themselves, the children can't. Mm -hmm. And so we need to take care of the children. And that's that's the way that he put it. I mean, that, you know, take care of the children is an actual quote from the last recording made in Jonestown, which is that of the uh, of the deaths as they are occurring. Okay. Um, and yes, once you've killed your child, um, you know, there's a lot less motivation for you to keep going. Yeah. And uh, and there were so, so, so many family groupings down in Jonestown, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, of the thousand people that were in Guyana that day. And, you know, a lot of them were in, uh, there were about uh, 80 that were in um, Georgetown or elsewhere at the time. But most of them had family members there, only about 150 people who were there basically by themselves. Everybody else was part of, of families. And once you start knocking out families, you know, there's there's just no reason for anyone to hang around. So how many people died that day? There were a total of 918 people who died that day. There were, um, there were 900, let me do the math here. Five, yeah. Um, so there are 909 who died in um, Jonestown. There were five who died at the airstrip, and there were four who died in um, in Georgetown. There was a, a woman who had been a member of People's Temple for a long time. She was known as one of the the more true believers of the of the organization. And when she got the message over the radio that it was time to die, she took her three children into a bathroom and um, and killed the children and herself. Do we have a number on how many children died? 
the number of children, the number of minors, that is, people who are under 18 was uh, was 306, so almost exactly one-third of the number of people who were, who were there. Mm-hmm. There are also that many, if not more, I don't think I've, I've calculated it exactly, but there were as many seniors. And so, you know, when people talk about whether things were should be considered murder or suicide, you know, we definitely consider all of the children to have died uh, of murder, even the ones who might have been, you know, done so, quote unquote, willingly, you know, just because, you know, you're not considered of to, to be uh, responsible for your actions until you hit majority age of 18. But I would also put some of the seniors uh, in, in the in that listing of people who are um, who should be considered murder victims in large part because they, they were totally dependent upon people's temple for their health and welfare, and they could not have survived um, uh, any length of time without the support that they were being uh, given by the rest of the adults in that in the community, and um, and for them, uh, life was was hopeless for them at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the contributors to your website, uh, Dr. James Knoll, who's a professor mm-hmm. of forensic psychiatry at uh, SUNY, that's what, State mm-hmm. University of New York, uh, he called it a familicide, right. uh, like, you know, when a father uh, kills his family, children, and himself, not out of spite for them, but thinking Correct. that they couldn't possibly survive if something right. happened to him and like the police at the door or something. So do you agree with that expression, calling uh, what happened to Jonestown a familicide? I do, and I and that, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that there was no provision made for what would happen to People's Temple after Jim Jones died. There are a lot of the members down there who thought after Jim Jones died, we'll be fine. Um, you know, we'll we'll just kind of keep on going on. We'll set up our. You know, there was a somewhat of a government down there, but you know, the government in a lot of ways could be. You know, the decisions that the government made could be overturned with the stroke of a pen by Jones himself. But Jones had not not only not provided for um, a successor, but to the contrary, had designated upwards of six people that uh, that he kind of teased with the idea of becoming his successor. And so no one really knew knew what to do. There was no real um, hierarchy set up for succession. And um, as Jim became, uh, uh, during Jim's final year, um, he became um, more obsessed with the day-to-day t- details in, this, in his work um, and was, uh, was taking um, pharmaceuticals both to stay awake and to go, go to sleep. His health started to, to deteriorate. And there are people uh, who have said um, I mean, there was a, a doctor of his who came down from San Francisco and visited him and who said that if Jim had not died on November 18th, along with everybody else, that he would likely have died by Christmas of natural causes. Mm. Jim undoubtedly knew that. And, um, and he just couldn't see um, any way for his, for his group to go forward. And so he was really, really, really looking for an excuse. As I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of this stuff, you know, Jim was a reactor instead of an actor. That's how he got from Indiana to California. That's how he got from California to get all the people to move to Guyana. And that's how they left Guyana um, by death, was in reaction to Congressman Ryan's visit. Jim Jones has been described in a number of different ways. He's been called an ideologue, a paranoid Mm -hmm. 
uh, a sexual predator, a narcissist, a psychopath, and I think some even called him a demon or something like that, evil. Uh, how would you how would you describe him in a few words? I think what I would say is I, I would um, kind of echo the words of my father-in-law who knew Jim Jones and whose, you know, whose two children died down there, um, who said, you know, you hear all these things labeled, all these uh, labels thrown against Jim Jones, but once you say that a man has killed 900 people, what worse can you say about him? And I think that that's probably the, the epitaph that I would put, put on him. So to you, was he mentally ill, um, psychopathic, or just a, a very strong narcissist like some other people we sometimes hear about in the news? Right. <laughs> I, think that, I think that he was definitely a, a narcissist. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I would go with uh, psychopath, but I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a psychologist or anything. Uh, he was definitely obsessed with, with um, being the person in charge doing the types of things that he needed to be to remain in charge, um, using all sorts of tactics to remain in charge, including being inconsistent in his policymaking decisions. But also I think he was ill, uh, both physically and mentally. And, um, you know, if you're making up stories for the people while you're down there, which there are, are dramatic uh, instances of that and in, in the various tapes that he made when he's, reporting, you know, the quote-unquote news of what's happening in the United States and a lot of the stuff he's just kind of making up as he goes along. After a while, you know, pretending to be mentally ill, you become mentally ill. Mm -hmm. uh, people's temples also sometimes very hard to put in a box. Um, yep. You know, sometimes it's called a religious organization, but, you know, I'm, I was reading and listening to a lot of things, and particularly in the last few years, there doesn't seem to be much talk about Jesus or prayer or any type of, uh, you know, the religious elements we might expect from a movement like that. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's called a um, utopian Marxist commune at the end. Mm -hmm. But then, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a, I don't know Marx that well, but I've read the Communist Manifesto, and I know that Marx himself was very critical of these little utopian projects rather than trying to change the system correct to kind of leave society so it doesn't seem to be particularly christian it doesn't seem to be particularly marxist at least not in their your pure forms right was was jonestown just a cult of personality was it just basically just to, uh, to flatter a man's ego with language that was you know uh, popular at the time civil rights and socialism right. you know i think i think the organization itself uh, could be considered any one of a number of different types of organizations ranging from, in other words, a lot of people joined for religious reasons, right? And they stayed because they thought there was a religious message. Um, a lot of people joined because of the social uh, welfare benefits that they got out of it. A lot of people joined because of the social welfare benefits that they themselves provided. A lot of the people joined because of the overtly political aspects of the temple. Um, so, you know, it, it is really hard to, um, to, to, to put it in a box. Um, I, I tend to, um, you know, so when people ask what, which one of those was it, I, you know, my reply in, in all sincerity is it was all of them. Mm. It, it was, was whatever all, that person wanted it to be. It was, it was whatever that person wanted. And, and even talking with the various, um, um, survivors now as to what drew them in, they're all, all, all very different. Mm. Um, there is, you know, the, the thing that I, really compare it to 
um, is the the children's story of the, of the blind men and the elephant, right? Where you have six blind men um, asked to describe an elephant, and one of them touches the tail and says it's a rope, and one of them touches the trunk and says it's a hose, and one of them touches the ears and says it's a leaf. You know, in other words, it depends upon which part of the elephant and which part of people's temple you're looking at. So, uh, so uh, Jonestown was a bit of an elephant, as you said. Yes, definitely. A, a white That's elephant? A, Jonestown the elephant. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd like to follow up on something I was talking about um, in our last episode with Mike Kropveld, and that is these words that sometimes they're, they're very frustrating words, but uh, they're very it's very hard not to use them. And one of mm -hmm. them is the word cult to mm -hmm. apply to a group like Jonestown. I think most people, when you think cult, would probably say that Jonestown comes in the top, you know, the top five or something. Uh, mm -hmm. And the other one is brainwashed. You know, how do we explain why these, uh, I don't know, five, 600 uh, adults would be willing to follow a man for some kind of a dream rather than saying, okay, you know what, this is crazy. I'm going back home. I mean, there were other mm -hmm. communes elsewhere, right? I don't know if they heard of Twin Oaks or Kibbutzes, but I'm sure mm -hmm. they could have thought we can start again in some other way. Why did they feel the necessity to die. So those, that's my question right. to you. Should we use the word cult to describe Jonestown? And should we <laughs> use the word brainwash to describe the, the why all these people died? I would say no to both in large, large part just because of the terminology. And that was the first part of episode 3.4 of Paranoid Planet. It was brought to you by the letter F, the dark side of socialism, the guys inside the trolley who always end up dying, and a prison experiment that went pear-shaped. Don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about our show and to help us make it easier to find for new listeners by leaving a rating or a short review on your podcast service. And don't forget about the stuff on our website like a list of related readings and videos, our theme song contest, a list of 10 things you should get to survive in the jungle, and maybe a strongly worded message from your mother asking you to stay home. This program is a Burden of Proof media production. On behalf of Joan Lijo and myself, this is Michel Gagné saying, stay away from the guy with the perm and the mirror sunglasses. The odds are, he ain't no Jiminy Cricket. We'll see you next time. about conspiracies, paradigm shifts, and critical thinking.